When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The show goes on. This is the official show on the Fish Stripes podcast channel. With me, Eli Sussman, the managing editor of Fish Stripes, where we cover your Miami Marlins every day in our own way. Your subscriptions, ratings, and reviews are immensely appreciated. For 16 seasons, 2002 to 2017, David Sampson presided over the Marlins franchise. He won a World Series championship in 2003 and did very little winning beyond that. He applied the pressure on Miami-Dade County to fund Marlins Park, but settled on a location that most Marlins fans found to be inconvenient. The Baseball Operations Department, assembled by Sampson, acquired many of the top talents in Marlins history. The problem was retaining them and surrounding them with complimentary pieces. Under Sampson and his former stepfather, Jeffrey Loria, the Marlins were notorious for pinching pennies and cutting corners in ways that were detrimental to the product on the field. The fan base, understandably, became angry and later apathetic. Fishstripes wanted to dive beneath the surface of Sampson's biggest decisions and get his perspective on how the Marlins have fared without him. It was impossible to cover everything in a single conversation, but if you find this episode valuable, please let us know and we'll arrange part two in the near future. Here's our interview with David Sampson. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We are joined by a special guest on the official show, co-hosting with Isaac Azut. I'm Eli Sussman. Thanks to everybody tuning in through YouTube, in addition to all the usual podcast places where you find fish drives. Five years removed from David Sampson's turbulent tenure as Miami Marlins president, the man himself is here. He's the host of Nothing Personal with David Sampson. You can find him on Twitter at David P. Sampson. Isaac and I have questions about your Marlins days, and uh, we appreciate your perspective on some current events as well. So thank you so much for the time, David. Oh, it's my pleasure. Is it still a thing to say what our Twitter handle is, or is that not a thing anymore? It's not that's usually part because... of the introduction, right? You can follow yeah. me on Twitter at David P. Sampson. Now people are like ducking for covers, saying, no, no, I'm not on that anymore, but I am. <laughs> the magic graphics, we have it scrolling on the screen. 
as well with David. Well, yeah, when we reached out to you originally, we were planning a lot of um, distant lookbacks, but there have been some current events with the Marlins that you very personally have a great perspective on, we think. So we're going to start with a positive, which is Jeff Conine, Mr. Marlin, coming back as an advisor to Bruce Sherman. Sounds like a similar role to what he had under your tenure with the organization. I know you know Jeff extremely, extremely well. When did you get a feeling, when did you know that he was being hired and just your general thoughts on him coming back? I think I had a feeling the minute Derek got fired that Jeff was going to be back with the organization. I think that was a big thing when Derek was there. He really wanted nothing to do with anything from the old regime, whether it was the color of the floor or anybody's face who possibly had any relationship to me. And so one of the first things they did is make a token offer. Derek did, not Bruce, but Derek made a token offer to Andre Dawson and Tony Perez and Jeff Conine and Jack McKeon. And all four of them summarily turned it down because it was so embarrassing. When, when I came to Florida in 02, uh, we had a list of employees because we inherited all of the Marlins employees on the business side. And we took our baseball employees with us from Montreal. And on a list was uh, Andre Dawson and Tony Perez. And I said, wait, wh what do they do here? And I remember meeting with them for the first time. And my first thought was, oh, my God, yes, please stay. And that was the beginning of basically 16 years with them. And then once Jeff retired, uh, we brought him back in 03, won a ring. And then once he retired, I had him back immediately uh, as an assistant. And him and Andre and Tony and I, we watched every game together for all those years. But when Derek took over, he got rid of him. And, and as soon as Derek left, I had a feeling that Bruce Sherman, he, he's a smart man. He knows what Jeff Conine means to the Marlins history. He's a common thread to the two world championships that the Marlins have in their 30 years. And uh, having him there is good for the players. It's good for the staff. It's just good for everybody, good for the community. So I'm really, really happy for the Marlins and for Jeff. Uh, follow up on that really quick, David. Do you think they'll end up retiring his number? So, you know, we had a conversation about retired numbers almost every year. We inherited one retired number, which was number five, which was retired in honor of Carl Barger, who was the first president of the Marlins, who never actually got to see a game because he passed away way too early and suddenly before the Marlins even started playing, but after the franchise was granted. And one of the biggest arguments I had with Jeffrey Lurie, the owner, is when Jeffrey unretired that number for Logan Morrison. And I was extremely angry about that. And I love Logan. He and I are still in touch. Um, look at me, David. But seriously, we're still in touch. And, and I just found it to be um, once the number's retired, it should stay retired. So we talked about should it be Jim Leland? Should it be Jack McKeon? You know, Luis Castillo, number one, is one of the all-time great Marlins. What about the World Series MVPs? Something with LeVon. And we just had a feeling that, that if there were going to be a number for me, it was going to be Conine. But remember, he had two different numbers with the Marlins. Yeah. So he was both 18 and 19. Uh, when, when, when he came back, he was a different number because Lowell was on the team. So we ended up just not retiring any numbers. And I don't know that they'll retire a number. Uh, and if they do, Conine to me would be the first in line. I thought, you know, when we signed Stanton, that we'd all stay around for Stanton to retire a Marlin and that he'd be the first retiring 27, which would have been very interesting because 27 – the first team I was with the Expos, 27, was Vladimir Guerrero. So 27 has always been a number that I related to, and I wanted that to be the first retired number. But I'm not there. He's not there. So I don't know what they're going to do. All right. And, you know, I'm sure you read the news. Uh, the Marlins will not be renewing the contract of uh, Glenn Geffner 
a brutal loss for the organization, in my opinion. You guys worked together for 10 years. I was just curious your thoughts. One, whose decision is it at the end of the day? And, you know, was it you personally who brought him in when you joined the Marlins? 3-2 to Jazz. Runner holds. Jazz smokes one right center. Way back toward the bullpen. And out of here for the second time tonight. The 0-1 pitch. Jazz gets into one. Way back. Right center toward the bullpen. And up onto the home run porch. A two-run homer. Some icing on the cake for the Marlins. Chisholm number 14. And it's 6-1. So as president of the team, I certainly know about the hires that are going on on the broadcast radio side, and I would meet with the broadcasters, but I had a department head named PJ Loyello who was in charge of broadcasting, and he would come to me with his recommendations. We listened to a bunch of tapes. We watched a bunch of videos when hiring TV people in conjunction with Fox just to help the audience. For the TV, we had a right of a look basically, but Fox did the hiring. But if we wanted someone there or someone gone, Fox would take that under consideration, but it was their call at the end of the day. On the radio side, it was always our call to both hire and fire. And so Glenn Geffner was brought in by, by PJ. And when I sat with Glenn, what struck me about him, and I believe he had come from Boston, is yep. his ability to not just call games, but what he did on the PR side, what he did on the marketing side, he was just an ambassador of your product and of your team, and his voice was good, and he was the perfect partner for Dave Van Horn, the Hall of Famer. And I'm very disappointed he's gone because I thought that he would retire there and even potentially be in the Hall of Fame You know, in 30 years. He's that good. So I think it's a big loss for the Marlins off the field, uh, not just in the radio booth, but again, the people who are running the organization have their reasons, and you have to respect it and, and move forward. Because at the end of the day, uh, it's really their decision now. So Glenn hopefully will land on his feet because some team would be very happy to have him and lucky to have him. Uh, we're speaking with David on Thursday, which is the day after Sandy Alcantara officially won uh, unanimously the National League Cy Young Award. I'm in this morning, the day after. Immediately, I get this email from the Marlins about now selling the Cy Young, of course, with ticket packages and all the opportunities that that unlocks to have somebody recognized with that award. I'm sure this is something you may have thought about with the potential, the marketing, the revenue potential that comes with having this major award recognition. We know that D-Train got pretty close in 2005. I'm sure when Jose Fernandez came up, you were dreaming of him winning a Cy Young. How would you like, articulate how important this is potentially to a team trying to generate interest and season ticket packages, everything along those lines. So listen, I talked about this a little bit on Nothing Personal, and the reality is when you win on the field, that's what you sell. Even though we tell our salespeople don't sell wins and losses because you don't control it, at the end of the day, winning is the best medicine to increasing revenue. But if you can't sell winning, then you sell individual accomplishments. So we would always promote if we had a gold glove winner or a silver slugger winner, or any sort of individual anything, be, even if they're finishing the top three or they're a finalist, because you want to generate interest and you want to, on opening day, present an award to a player that they get as a way to help sell tickets for opening day and to help generate interest once spring training starts. We always wanted a Cy Young Award winner because two things the franchise never had, Cy Young Award winner and a division win and a cycle. Yeah. No one's ever hit for the cycle in Marlins history, which is crazy to me how many no hitters we have or they have now with no no cycles. So what you do when you have a Cy Young Award winner is you start generating ticket packages 
and you're trying to get people to just get their foot in the door. So the reason why you see ticket packages that are anywhere from 10 games up to all 80 games is it's like a pipeline of sale of selling and you want people at different stages of the pipeline. And so you want people starting to just come to a game and then come to multiple games and then buy a flex season ticket package and then buy a half a season ticket and so on and so forth. So Sandy winning is a catalyst for that in terms of actual dollars that they will generate by promoting Sandy as the Cy Young award winner. It is de minimis, but it does look good in marketing. No question. The Cy Young award winner for this year is nonetheless Sandy Alcantara, Dominican pride, and uh, pretty soon to be yeah! the Dominican dancer. Very happy, very happy for her. Very happy. And I guess now is a good time to maybe sort of go into your tenure as president. Um, and I think one of the common misconceptions with you and Jeffrey's regime was that you weren't willing to spend and that you guys were cheap. And I think that's, you know, inaccurate. I would believe that what irked fans maybe a little bit more was the wild fluctuations in payroll, you know, from one year to the next, you know, for example, from 05 to 06 and 12 to 13. So I guess what could possibly, you know, justify slashing payroll to the extreme degree that you guys did when really no other teams were doing it that way? I love that question and it's great. So here's the answer. If I had to do it again, I wouldn't have ripped off the Band-Aid the way I did, but I always felt as though ripping a Band-Aid was better than taking it off and getting one hair pulled out at a time. <laughs> and so the theory there is that if you know the best low revenue teams have the front offices who are the most aware of when their winning window is open and when their winning window is closed. It's now called a rebuild it or tanking, right? It became popular. People tank. What tanking really means is that your window's closed and instead of just being in the middle, and that's the one thing you learn in president school, you don't want to be in the middle. Winning 80 games does nothing for your franchise. Winning 90 games and making the playoffs, that does something. Winning 60 games and getting a high pick that does something potentially down the line, but being in the middle is not very helpful. And the biggest mistake we made, actually, if you think about it, we kept being in the middle for way too long. If you look at our records, we're 83 and 79, 79 and 83. In that range, we kept teams together for too long. So let's go to the Dan Ugla reign with Cody Ross and Jorge Cantu and that group, that was a fun group, yeah. but we could never get over the hump. We were close in 09, but we could never get over the hump. And then we got a new ballpark. So we had a plan to build into the new ballpark to keep increasing payroll. So our payroll went up in 10 and in 11 and then in 12. But what we did from 11 to 12 is we went too high. Mm -hmm. Instead of making it a calmer ascent, we poured money into the payroll and then the team stunk. And that's our fault because we didn't have the right players and we weren't ready to win. The best front offices are ready to win when it's time to win and you sprinkle in some free agents. We thought we had the right players, sprinkle in a Reyes and a Bell, and all of a sudden you've got yourself a winning team. Remember how good Hanley was at that point. And it just didn't happen for us. Driving the air to right field, Stanton going back, and it's over his head, and the Mets win it! Kirk Neuenheis with a walk-off hit, 
against Heath Bell in the bottom of the ninth, and they sweep the Marlins, winning it three to two. And so then after 12, when I when we were losing that much money and our window was closing, we ripped off the Band-Aid in that trade for Toronto, which ended up being a good baseball trade, yeah. a terrible PR trade, just terrible, worst ever. And uh, I regret that. I regret how harsh I was about that trade, uh, especially right after the new ballpark. I regret what happened with Ozzy and Fidel Castro. That was terrible. So, so many things went wrong, and we tried to build it up again. And, you know, we had some good players again, and we did, were doing well. We had Yelich and Stanton, Ozuna and JT and Jose. But even those players couldn't win 81 games. But we kept saying there's got to be something wrong. The, next year we'll get them. And then, obviously, the tragedy with Jose and, and, and the rest is history. And uh, that's sort of, again, maybe too long an answer, but listen. If you're not good, like the Tampa Bay Rays are good at knowing when their window is, or the Oakland A's, look at what the Oakland A's did, right? They had a great run of playoff appearances. Last season, they lost 100 games. Their window's closed. And then they're going to slowly build up for when their window opens again. We just never did it well from a timing standpoint or a PR standpoint. And you mentioned that 2012 trade. It was great baseball trade, which I agree with. Maybe we can get into that a little bit later, but it was horrible for PR. Does it ever make sense as a president to do something that doesn't make the most sense baseball-wise, but it really will keep fans saying, oh, it's not the same thing anymore? Because at that point already, it was like, oh, shit, here we go again. It's, it's, it's right. It, the problem is I never wanted to listen to anything that the media or the fans were saying because I wanted to – when I first got into baseball, Jim Beatty was the first general manager I ever had. And he was a World Series winning pitcher for the Yankees. He was the GM of the Expos, and we kept him as GM when we got there. And he told me, David, one thing you're going to have to learn is if you start listening to the fans and the media, you will soon be amongst them, meaning you will lose your job. Your job is to get rid of that noise and do what you think is best for the organization. You're not going to be right all the time. Find me a team president or any team. Forget team president. Find me any of the 30 teams who doesn't regret a trade they've made or a signing they've made. Find me a market where people in the market don't complain about a signing or a trade. That's part of being a fan, and I love that. That's the emotional side. But I went too far. I became like robotic and just totally ignored anything other than what I, in a tunnel, thought was right for the team. And that probably was, obviously was a mistake. Yeah, fair enough. And I think an equally as big an issue was a lack of investment in analytics. You know, your tenure overlapped almost perfectly with the rise of advanced stats, player projections, stat cast, et cetera. But yet compared to other MLB teams, you guys didn't really hire many people to help analyze that data. What's your explanation for that? Uh, that's actually just wrongs, right? So Larry Beinfest, who you would say is an old school GM, he was using analytics before analytics were called analytics, but so were all the other teams. Analytics are an arrow that you put in your quiver as you look to evaluate a player. To this day, I will tell you that if you do only analytics, you're not going to be successful. You have to use your eyes. You have to look into a player's eyes. You have to understand game situations. I agree with math because I'm a math guy, but sports is not math, right? In math, there's either a right answer or a wrong answer. It's black and white. Sports is gray. There are different heart rates that you have to know about players who can perform in certain situations. And I can look at the numbers of who's good in a leverage situation or close and late, what their batting average is, but I'm still going to go deeper. And Jack McKeon taught me this. I'm still going to go deeper 
and look at a player that particular day, that particular moment. So we always used a mix. And I think what you're seeing now in baseball is that the roles have changed, right? Managers are not making gut instinctual yeah. calls. They're not allowed to. Front offices are making lineups. We never made a lineup. We would talk to our manager about what we wanted. And sometimes the manager would say, screw off. And sometimes we'd talk it through and he'd agree. Now the lineup is generated by the front office every day. The pitching rotation, who comes in when, is generated by the front office. But you've got some managers who deny that because they don't want to look emasculated. But that's just not the case. Therefore, the incremental advantage of analytics is sort of like the incremental advantage of the shift. It was really good when only one team was doing it. But when every team does it, what exactly is the benefit that you have over your competition? I don't know if that passes the smell test totally, David, because you're right that every team was using analytics to some extent. But by all accounts, your analytics department through those years was perhaps the smallest in the entire league. Mm -hmm. And it's more effective generally if you are hiring more analysts or in some way investing more into getting the right types of information. So that's kind of what people, what, what I think fans naturally will take exception to well, is I that think, I, I hear you should have done more in terms of building out that staff to keep up instead of lagging kind of all the way at the bottom in terms of the size of the staff that you had. Yeah. I, I think that's a great question, but also remember I'm in charge of a budget and I would always rather spend money on major league players. And let's just say that you want to put in $400,000 into an analytics department and you want to hire five guys at 80 grand, five people, excuse me, at $80,000 or 10 people at $40,000. And the question is, when you have the opportunity to move money in different places, we had a limited budget because whether you want to believe it or not, I was there. I know what years Jeffrey had to write checks, cash checks at the end of a year. I know exactly what years he didn't. And the overwhelming majority of the time he had to write checks. Therefore, we had to make decisions in our budget. And I will tell you that I chose against analytics more often than I didn't because the managers we had and the front office we had, they felt they had enough information. And if you ask them, hey, do you want a minor league free agent who has a chance to make the team? Do you want an extra few of those in spring training? Or do you want two other guys at $40,000? Every time they chose, give me the extra body, give me the extra player, because you never know who's going to work out for us. And that's how we did it. Today, if I were running a team, of course, I would budget more for analytics and less for marketing, because winning, it turns out, is the best marketing. I'm curious, as uh, we are creeping closer and closer to the World Baseball Classic in Miami, you, you had it there in 2017 for a portion of the tournament, but they have really expanded Miami's participation in all the games that are being hosted there, including the finals, including the absolutely most highly anticipated games down there. I'm just wondering how jealous you might be that now <laughs> Loma Depot Park, formerly Marlins Park, is the home of the Classic, whereas back in 2017, you only got a slice of it. Yeah, it's a rotation. So if I'd been around longer, it was going to come to Miami. The one thing that I hope they do better than I did, and I was an abject failure at this, I could not convert any of those people who came to the World Baseball Classic into season ticket holders, and we tried everything. We tried to tie tickets to season tickets. We tried to do – we had salespeople walking around the stadium during those games because there were so many people there. 
And you heard what uh, the Marlins are saying now, saying, hey, we're going to have a full stadium for all these rounds. We're going to get these people and teach them to be Marlins fans and to come to games. That is the dream. One, two. Great play by Machado to second for one. Oh, the double play. Manny Machado, you are unbelievable. He's already won two gold gloves. You could fit him for another dozen as far as we're concerned. And I hope they're more successful than I. It won't be hard for them to be because our season ticket numbers were so low. But that's how I think about the World Baseball Classic. It's a great selling opportunity. And if you do it right, it works. And if all things fall into place, you'll have more attendance next year. Uh, Again, not what's announced. I'm talking when I say attendance, just so you know, I'm talking actual revenue. And that's always hidden from all of you. Uh, We can make up, as you know, I did. I made up the attendance every single game. So you can say that the attendance goes up next year, but that's not the relevant question. The relevant question will be what is the revenue because that's how you know how much money can be put into payroll. You know, something I was always curious, you know, when I was a fan during your tenures, Phil, sort of lack of investment towards the international market. You guys were never big players when it came to the international signing periods. I know you guys were close to getting Jose Obreu at one point. Just how close was he in particular since he's a free agent now and just – why were you guys never on top of that market as well? Wow. We were amazingly close to getting Cespedes. We went down. Right. We went down to meet with him, and we just got outbid at the last minute by a very little amount. Uh, we did well internationally over the years, but back then, uh, it's way different than it was now. Back then, it was the wild, wild west. So we were competing with teams who had an international budget of twenty or thirty million, and our international budget was like three or four million. Because again, given a choice. I would always say, let's invest in the major league product where players can perform now instead of investing in 16-year-olds where the odds are you're going to have a hard time doing it. Now, the Astros are a great example of a team who signed a bunch of players and they ended up on their World Series roster this year. But if you look at the makeup of rosters, not so many players come from the international um, system. But that said, everybody's capped now. So everyone's equal. And that's a huge, huge difference. What I'm wondering is something that has been kind of a theme on Nothing Personal about instances where you felt that employees in the Marlins organization, whether it's players, whether it's coaches or something, kind of leaped behind your back to go straight to Jeffrey to get things that they wanted, to get things done that uh, they wanted to get done. Uh, Just to for people that aren't familiar, could you give just some examples of what that happens, like in instances where that happens, and how prevalent do you think that is in baseball right now in terms of owners that are that same way in that they are going outside the normal structure of things <laughs> to uh, give things to their employees that are, when they ask pretty please for something, that owners will cave in like that. <laughs> well, it's not just that. It's about players. It's about signings. You saw that Jim Crane just fired James Click, the GM of the World Series winning Astros, got fired because he didn't like what James Click was doing. And James Click didn't like that other people in the organization had a bigger voice than he did. He felt that it undercut him. Think about wherever you work, whatever business you're in. If you manage someone and that person goes running to your boss instead of you, explain to me what your reaction would be. How would you feel if you got called into an office by your boss and your boss says, hey, do this. And you say, well, where does that come from? And he says, just do this. And then you find out that that idea came from someone who's supposed to report to you. I can promise you what your reaction would be, and it would be negative. So when players wanted something in the clubhouse, they knew that Jeffrey would do anything for players. 
So they would ask for these things like a hyperbaric chamber or some sort of equipment or some such stuff that they like to have, whether Heath Bell liked certain equipment or Michael Morse wanted a piece of equipment. <laughs> and they knew that I would say no and that Larry and Mike would say no. They'd go to Jeffrey. Jeffrey would say yes. Jeffrey would come to us and say, hey, get this piece of equipment. And we'd be, well, that's not in the budget. And he'd say, do it. Well, Jeffrey, you're going to write the check for it. I don't care. Just do it. It'll make the players happier and better. That's one instance. The second is when people who report to the GM, and, and there are people who did this a lot. They reported to the GM, but they would go around the GM to Jeffrey and talk about players. Hey, we should sign that guy. Let's sign John Buck. Let's sign Jared Saltalamacchia. Let's trade for this player. Let's trade for Matt Latos. Let's trade Luis Castillo. All of those things would go to Jeffrey. He didn't come up with that. He wasn't running the team, but he listened to people below Mike Hill and Larry Bonfest. And those people had ideas. Some were good, some were not. But this, I never cared about the result of the idea. I cared about the process in which it happened because that process leads to dysfunction and that dysfunction leads to problems. David, you've gone on record saying that the location of the ballpark was, it was maybe something that you regretted a bit. I was wondering, as president, what were some of your biggest regrets You know, when you were running the Marlins every single day? My biggest regrets, if we can further define that word, if you don't mind, uh, regret is something that I had control over that I did mm -hmm. that I would do differently were I to do it again. Can we use that as the definition? Absolutely. I think that's a good one, right? So bonds is not in that category. Okay. Uh, what I had control over are things that I did like in, in, in 2012, when before the season started, when I gave a speech at the Beacon Council and that speech was not received well and there were misunderstandings about what was said and it was my fault because I wasn't clear and that got a lot of press, bad press, and that impacted the team. I regret that. I regret threatening the way I did to move the team. I could have done it in a much less public way and I could have been less, again, I'm using the word robotic again. I could have been less robotic about how I communicated to fans because they felt I didn't care whether the Marlins were in Miami. And I did. I wanted them in Miami. I lived there. I was raising my family there. I didn't want to go to Texas or Vegas or Portland or anywhere. I wanted to be there because my kids were young and I loved it. So I regret how I did that. I regret how I did the trade of Miguel Cabrera, not the actual trade, because there was nothing I could do about that. We were trying to get a new ballpark, and when we didn't get it, we had to lower the payroll. Would I And we weren't going to sign him, and so therefore the baseball people said, your best value will be now. I regret being unable to get the ballpark in the time that I thought we'd get it, which would have made Miguel Cabrera the Giancarlo Stanton. We would have been able to sign Miguel Cabrera and, and, and have the stadium open you know, five years earlier. So I, I regret how that went down. But again, from a baseball standpoint, every baseball person said, if you can get Mabin and Miller you know, and you have to trade Cabrera, you make that trade. They were two of the top prospects at that time. Yeah, I regret the fact that uh, – it took extra years to get the ballpark because of all of the lawsuits from Norman Brayman and all of the craziness that happened. But now I look back and realize, look what Oakland and Tampa are going through and how many years it's taken them. And look at what some of the other cities do in order to get a ballpark built. It's damn hard. And if I weren't the face of it, 
I might not have had you with the word of the day of turbulent, right? If it were someone else who was the public face of the franchise, if it were someone else who were not the, you know, the, the foil, the bad guy, um, then maybe I would have had a different reputation that, that I've had to rebuild over these past five years. Right. I mean, if we're if we're talking, which we are, I started from negative 10 when I left the Marlins and, and joined CBS and started nothing personal because so many people associated me with such anger and had forgotten of any pleasure that may have been derived from 03. Any goodwill was gone. And I had to start over and build that again. And and for that, you know, I am terribly sorry, not just to fans, but to my agent. <laughs> who had to put up with so much crap. No, but in all seriousness, I, I wish that I had, of course I wish I'd been better liked and more popular, right? Like who doesn't want that? But I wasn't able to be because I had to do my job. And uh, I wish I'd been better at being able to both do my job and be better liked. In going about your everyday life at this point, now five years removed, do you feel that some people have forgiven you or... um Maybe you've converted people just because of your content, or maybe they hold up your track record compared to these last five years under new well, ownership. Certainly helped. Which, which <laughs> frankly, um, yeah, when you compare them head to head, it, it's it's hard to give a clear edge to this new group in most other senses. Uh, yeah, I'm curious about how yeah, you think it's that. Time. It's time, right? So time heals all wounds. And I, I didn't disappear. I, I, I do content every day. And many people, it's, it's, it used to be when Nothing Personal started for the first month, about 95% of the listeners were from Florida. And it was, hey, you know, let's listen to what th this terrible guy has to say, and then we'll hate it. Uh, now, uh, Florida's like 4% of the show. Wow. And so the people around the country, they don't associate me with the Marlins or the people who are listening around the world. I get a report from all the countries where nothing personal has an audience. They don't know anything about my life other than me being at CBS and being a former team president with the World Series ring. But I think that what I hear a lot when I'm in Miami now are people who have perspective on it. And that perspective only came because of Jeter. So for that, I love him because he came in and said, God, these David Sampson was the worst. I'm going to do everything the opposite, and we're going to be successful. We're going to get it done, and we'll show you how bad he was. Meanwhile, five years later, <laughs> you know, he wasn't able to do it and then got removed. So I, I think that a lot of things have come together. Plus, I've gotten older. I've changed. I, you know, I'm more emotional. I've got I've, – I've, I've evolved and become more understanding of what I was – what it was like in my 30s and 40s now that I'm in my fifties. So I think you put all that together and it makes me more relatable and it makes people want to listen to the content more, which again provides more time and space between what it was as president versus who I am now as a content provider. Now, speaking of, you know, emotion, I think, you know, obviously you and Donnie, you guys dealt with one of the you know biggest tragedies in sports history. You know, I just was asking if, you you know, I know we're short on time a little bit, just if you could maybe walk us through the morning of, of September 25th. And if that moment, I don't know if whether Jeffrey was already thinking of selling the team, if that maybe pushed him towards doing so a little bit quicker than he would have initially. Um, just maybe just if you can, whatever you can share with us the morning of September 25th, how the teams that, you know, the game was canceled, but, you know, what how yeah. teams handled it and. I think about that every day. I was excited for that day because it, we were celebrating Ichiro's 3,000th hit. Yep. It's going to be a special day. 
and uh, it was an afternoon game. And I slept at that time with my phone on, which I regret. If you ask me a list of regrets, that would be a regret. But uh, the phone rang very early and it was my kill. And I knew something was wrong because he doesn't call me that early to say hello or ask me what I'm doing. And I assumed it was a DUI or, a, or, or some sort of employee or player who had a DUI. That's generally the calls you get in the middle of the night or really early in the morning. Um, and uh, he answered. I said hello. And, and his voice just sounded different. And then he said, I'm conferencing in an officer. So I, I said, that's strange. You know, I don't know why he'd be doing that. But when you conference someone in, you know, there's silence for a minute while he's merging the call. So I couldn't say, hey, what, why? Because it, it happened like that. And then there was someone from Fish and Wildlife who was at the scene of an accident telling me about at least one player who's dead. And I, I, I didn't even, it, it couldn't be. And I, and I was told that it was Jose Fernandez. And I said, well, no, you know, you've got the wrong and this was me being white, right? I said, there's a million Jose Fernandez's in Miami. There's no way this is our player. Um, and uh, we I had to identify him. I said, I, I remember saying this so clearly. I said, does this person have a tattoo on their leg? Jose had a bicycle. Yeah. Um, what's that called? The bicycle chain. Yeah. The, the thing where the gears are, a gear chain, was tattooed on his leg. And... And the answer was yes. And I just remember my brain exploding. And I went right to, um, I went right into action. And I, I think back on that all the time. And I, I don't know why uh, that happened. But the, the, I, I immediately woke up my wife and said, Jose Fernandez is dead. I have to go. And I didn't say anything more to her. Like I didn't even... I didn't even talk to her. I got in the shower. I picked up Mike Hill, who lived near me. I said, we have to go to the ballpark. That's the only thing I could think of to do. And for the rest of that day and the next day, I, there's no playbook for it, right? I just tried to figure out what we were going to do next because I was in charge of everything that happened. And um, I'm still in touch with Penelope, his daughter, and uh and and maria his fiance when he died and um she is uh a beautiful little girl and uh it was just terrible i don't i don't even know what what else to say about it but the, you you'd think that it will get better and i i'm sad to tell you and i'm working through this i'm trying to make it better but it doesn't get better i don't feel better about it i re i regret you know i i didn't put this in my list of regrets but i regret you asked me why I have a personal problem with Scott Boris. You know, Scott Boris convinced us to not pitch him on Sunday and to pitch him Monday. Um, he yeah. was due to pitch that day, and we, we moved him back a day because he had pitched extra pitches in Philadelphia, and Scott Boris called all angry and sanctimonious, and we compromised and said, all right, we'll pitch him Monday against the Mets instead of Sunday against the Braves. And, um, you know, he wouldn't have gone out Saturday night, obviously, if he were pitching Sunday, so. Anyway, yeah. That final topic that we wanted to get you out here on, David, was big picture the viability of Major League Baseball in a market like Miami. Because you got into this on a nothing personal recently in a mailbag about um, touching on the lack of corporate sponsors, about the nature of the population. Uh, for anybody that didn't hear that, I, I thought it was an interesting way to articulate what makes this a unique market. It's not 
teeny tiny market. It doesn't feel like um, from as far as we could tell, it's hard to understand why this team under different owners is consistently at the very bottom in terms of revenue. So if you could briefly just like touch on why you think this is a difficult market to grow the game in. Yeah, it's next man up, right? Wayne Huizinga, one of the richest men in the country. John Henry, one of the richest men in the country. You had Jeffrey, you had Bruce Sherman. So there's been four owners in the history of the Marlins, and they've each found the same difficulty. And the difficulty is in trying to get people to attend games, whether it was a pro player or now at Marlins Park and or Lone Depot Park. And, and I think the reason that there's a misunderstanding about the market in Miami it seems it's a very hip, very cool market. People love baseball, quote unquote. There's a huge Cuban population. There's partying going on. It's an event-driven town. But at the end of the day, the summer is not a great time in Florida. And people leave. So the, the DMA, the demographics in Florida, the richest people are not there during the summer. They go north for the summer. That's number one. Number two, in terms of cities, Miami is horrific as far as corporate membership. There are no big companies in Miami. What's no. the biggest one? Carnival? Guess what? They sponsor the heat because they're owned by the guy who owns the heat. <laughs> Burger King. Forget it. Burger King is made up of franchises. A guy who owns a Burger King in Alabama doesn't want to have the money from marketing for Burger King spent at Marlins Park or anywhere. They do totally different sort of co-op advertising. Ryder, same thing. That's sort of a, it's not a huge corporate sponsor. So we were never able to find, and there aren't any, local companies who are based in Miami who want to, by the way, FTX, are the heat happy with that one? Right. So it's where are the companies, the blue chip companies that are naming other buildings in other places like banks where they're based in Ohio or based in Milwaukee. Right. The beer in Milwaukee, Miller Park. That's not a coincidence that it was called Miller Park. Miller was brewed in Milwaukee. And guess what? When it wasn't brewed in Milwaukee, they changed the name of the ballpark. They don't play at Miller Park anymore. So. There, there's all sorts of reasons, but at the end of the day, we don't win enough. So until they win at Marlins Park and don't draw, then Miami is not a viable market. If that happens where there's a sustained open window where there's playoff appearances, and I don't mean in a COVID-shortened season, I mean mm -hmm. where you are a wild card or a division winner and you're in the playoffs three out of five years and you make a deep run, maybe win a world championship. That would be amazing, but not required. Um, and still the season ticket base is so small and the corporate revenue is so small. Then I think you're going to have a problem in Miami. So that new TV deal has finally kicked in. Yes. The, um, they did get naming rights sponsored to the ballpark. Uh, they, Jersey patches are coming in the future as well. Additional revenue from over there. Generally speaking, on a national level, you know, the revenue that is shared is probably more substantial than even when you were running the team, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's a huge industry now. I love that they're embracing gambling. Uh, right. I'd love to see a sports book at Marlins Park. You know, anything to increase revenue. I think a big misconception, I love the Marlins. I love Miami. I want the Marlins to win. I want to be part of a franchise because I'm part of its history. 
I want to be part. Yeah, they won a World Series under Dombrowski. They won a World Series under Samson. They won a World Series under Next and under Next, like just part of the narrative as people look back over 100 years of Marlins history. I'd love to be a small part of a successful history. And, you know, now I'm part of one of two championships. Happy to be part of one of 10 championships. That'd be so cool. Or to be part of, you don't think that I want Marlins Park sold out every day? Oh my God, that's my dream for it to be sold out every day so people can enjoy the park that I had a small hand in in, in making real and, and having had it built. So I do want all things and I still love the Marlins. As a matter of fact, you can't see it now because we're on uh, whatever we're on, but I have a blazer on and a shirt, but on my bottom, I have shorts. I'm wearing my Marlins shorts. So I still wear, actually, I, it's probably not the new logo, right? Probably the the old no, logo. New shorts. Let's see. Oh, oh wow! All right, all right. No, he's telling the truth for people that are just listening. He is a uh, legit wearing those shorts. We- and I didn't wear. By the way, I didn't wear them because I'm doing this show. Like I don't have different shorts for different shows. This right. is just today's Thursday, and these are my Thursday shorts. So I, <laughs> I love the Marlins, and uh, I care about them, and I love the fans. I love going back to Miami. I'll be in Miami. I don't know when you're releasing this, but I'll, I'm going to Moss, Miami. Uh, which is the Lebetard event on December 10th. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll be there. And I love being a part of the community still. And from a charitable standpoint, I just love it. I'm appreciative of the opportunity to come on your show. Yeah, this went differently than expected, to be honest, David. Um, this was very insightful. And uh, we appreciate the transparency and how reflective you were. Eli Sussman, Isaac Azud. It's been a long road for Isaac. We could go back about a decade ago. And there he is standing oh shoulder God. for shoulder with you before he fully hit puberty. Could, uh, <laughs> what do we think, 2012 or 2013? Something this like must that. have been 2012 that I was that small. So because the following year, I was fortunate enough. Dan Jennings, the executive, the manager, was able to somehow let me be ball boy. And I think I was a little bit younger than when I was in 2013. So that has to be 2012 with, with you, David. That's awesome. That's uh, cool to see. Thank you for showing me that. <laughs> David Sampson. Nothing personal with David Sampson. You could get it everywhere you get your pods. And uh, this was awesome. We, uh, we didn't get to everything. So maybe we'll have you back in the future. I look forward to it. Have a great day. Thank you. 